This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, there's a federal agency with the sole mission of preventing and ending homelessness in the U.S. We'll talk to the executive director about their new roadmap to tackle the crisis. Then, the Government Accountability Office has served as the federal government's watchdog for over 100 years. The head of the agency joins us to discuss the top findings from 2022 and what's ahead for 2023. And Japan has recently approved a new defense strategy. It includes major shifts in policy and record spending. We break down those changes. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. A, federal, a new federal strategic plan aims to reduce American homelessness by 25% in 2025. Jeff Olivet is the executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, which led the development of this plan. Jeff, welcome to the program. Mimi, it's great to be with you. This agency was created 35 years ago, but homelessness is still a major problem in the United States. Why hasn't the agency solved it by now? You're right. Homelessness is a life and death public health crisis in this country, and it's been part of the American landscape for more than three decades now. Uh, there have been some things that are working, but I think one problem is we haven't fully scaled up the solutions that we know that work. We also have not as a nation done a great job preventing homelessness before it ever happens. So what are those challenges? You talked about scaling solutions. What, what's really the barriers to really addressing this problem once and for all? There's some underlying economic factors that are really important for us to understand and talk about. The increasing cost of housing, the fact that we don't have enough affordable housing in this country. In fact, in 1970, we had a surplus of 300,000 units of affordable housing. Now we have a deficit of 7 million. So when you see that trajectory of the loss of affordable housing, you can track that to a rise in homelessness over the last several decades. Why, why that dramatic uh, decrease in affordable housing? Where, where have they been going? Uh, a lot have just cycled off the market. I think we've not also done a great job at developing a pipeline of affordable housing. Uh, there's a new effort led by the White House around uh, affordable housing supply, trying to really speed along the development of that housing. The other issue is that wages don't always keep up with the cost of housing. So people simply don't make enough money, even if they're working one or more jobs. Many people are working two jobs and can't afford housing. There has been a, a recent increase in homelessness in, in America over the past few years. What's behind that? Well, we saw a trend, a downward trend from about 2010 to 2016, and then that curve started bending back upward. And I think some of the economic factors that I talked about are very real for people. I think the uncertainty of the pandemic and the, the economic situation has complicated that. Although by 2020, we started uh, infusing resources through the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan that have really begun to bend the curve back. So the last two years, we've seen a basic flat line where homelessness is no longer on the increase. It has kind of stayed steady. That's not good enough. We need to drive it back down again. How does your agency fit into the broader federal um, effort to address homelessness? You know, there's HUD is obviously doing this, um, the VA. What's your specific role and how do we know that 
there isn't a lot of duplication of effort. One of our main jobs is to make sure that there's not duplication of effort. We bring together 19 federal agencies, including HUD, the VA, Health and Human Services, Labor, Transportation, and many, many others, to make sure that the effort is coordinated, pointing in a strategic direction, and as effective and efficient as possible. You know, one element of the plan discusses what you had talked about, which is the lack of affordable housing. How does the plan address that? What are the solutions? One thing I mentioned earlier is the White House Affordable Housing Action Supply Plan, which is really trying to create incentives for affordable housing development, creative financing mechanisms. So that's a piece of it. But we also need to shore up our behavioral health systems around mental health and substance use treatment. And we need to go upstream and turn off the faucet so that people aren't becoming homeless in the first place. I also want to ask about, you know, once they do get into housing, is there programs in place to make sure that they don't fall back into homelessness again? There are some very good programs that are providing case management and job training and mental health and substance use treatment, recovery from trauma and domestic violence and human trafficking. We just don't have those programs on a large enough scale to meet the demand. So one challenge is the affordable housing supply part. The other is how we scale up the wraparound supports so that people really do stay successfully stable in housing. You talked about coordinating and working with other federal agencies. I wonder if you work on the state and local level and with nonprofits or charitable organizations. We do. In fact, I, you know, I believe that the federal government has a strong role to play in allocating resources and in charting a direction, but the real work happens at the local level. It is the nonprofits, it's mayors and governors and local leaders who are really doing the work of ending homelessness. Our agency has a wonderful team of senior regional advisors who work in communities around the country. I meet routinely with governors and mayors, with local nonprofit leaders, and with folks experiencing homelessness to make sure that we're all pointing our efforts in the same direction. You know, there have been plans like this in the past. This isn't the first one. What's fundamentally different this time, and, and why do you think that this time it's going to succeed? What we're trying to do is build on the best things about the previous plans, and there have been some very good things. In fact, the first federal strategic plan to prevent and end homelessness was called Opening Doors more than a decade ago. That plan laid the groundwork for real success in reducing veteran homelessness, youth homelessness, family homelessness, and we've seen those numbers with those subgroups go down pretty significantly because of those plans. We're trying to take that work forward, but also chart new directions. One of the major new directions we're going is around prevention. So we've seen over the last few years, hundreds of thousands of people, even millions of people exit homelessness. It works, like a lot of the good housing and supportive services programs work, but we've not done a great job at closing the front door. So one thing that this plan is trying to bring to the table is a real focus on upstream prevention. All right, well, Jeff, we certainly hope that you succeed and uh, good luck and thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you, Mimi. Coming next, the head of the nonpartisan Congressional Watchdog Agency joins us to discuss major findings from 2022 and initiatives for 2023. Straight ahead on Government Matters. Gene Dodaro is the head of the Government Accountability Office. It oversees federal operations and protects American taxpayer dollars. Gene, welcome to the program. Hello, Mimi. It's nice to be with you. So one of your highest profile reports of 2022 was around college financial aid. What did you look at specifically and what did you find? 
Well, given the concern about the debt burden of, of students, we looked at whether or not colleges and universities were providing accurate information to students and their parents ahead of time so that they could make well-informed decisions about the financial costs of uh, attending these colleges and universities. And what we found in 91% of the colleges that they didn't provide accurate information uh, to the students and parents about what the actual cost would be of attending that university. They understated some costs. For example, they may have left out housing and, and food uh, costs. Uh, they may have not given any cost information at all. So we recommended that the Congress require more standardized information be given to students and parents so that they could make, you know, do some comparison shopping, find out whether or not they can really afford to attend the colleges and universities that they would like to and make decisions, thereby, I think, helping to help them manage the debt burden that we've seen be a problem for many uh, students and their parents uh, so, that, so that we could help them going forward. And there were obviously a lot of reports that you did on the CARES Act and pandemic relief funding. What stood out for you on those reports? Well, we continue to make recommendations both in the public health area as well as in uh, program integrity issues. In the health area, I was very pleased to see that the Transportation Department changed their approach in response to a recommendation we made back in 2015, maybe, that they develop a uh, transportation safety program for communicable diseases. And previously, they said it wasn't their responsibility. It should be HHS or DHS. And we said, no, we think you should lead it. It needs to be international in scope. Uh, and uh, so they changed their approach. So they're beginning to work on it. And then Congress also uh, required them to develop this in the latest uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act for this year. So I was very encouraged by that. Uh, the Small Business Administration uh, input um, uh, procedures uh, to comport with our recommendations for better oversight over the emergency loan programs, uh, PPP and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, and they avoided uh, forgiving loans that they might not have uh, done before. That was about three and a half billion dollars. So there's, you know, some efforts underway, but there's still a lot of work to do. You know, we designated uh, HHS's leadership and coordination as a high risk area across the federal government out of our normal two year cycle at the beginning of each new Congress. We also designated the unemployment insurance area high risk. And of course, we already had designated the SBA emergency loan programs is high risk. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on program integrity to get our nation better prepared for future public health emergencies. Uh, so, you know, some progress, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. And that's I, I, why I wanted to focus on the high risk issues. I want to ask you about aid sent to Ukraine. Uh, your agency received an additional $7.5 million in new funding to oversee that. What are the major areas that you'll be investigating and how will you measure impact of that aid during an ongoing war? Yeah, well, we've looked at uh, such aid in the past, uh, for example, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and other aid that we provide the country. So we're well prepared to take on these new responsibilities. 
we'll look at whether or not the agencies that are administering the aid have good plans for internal controls and oversight over the work. You know, we'll do some, uh, you know, independent testing of, of that information. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we'll, we're developing an oversight plan now and we'll be looking at various aspects of how the aid was used, uh, how the departments are measuring the effectiveness of the aid and whether it's achieving the objectives that were intended by the Congress. And so we, we've done this before in many countries and, and we'll be doing it again in the Ukraine. And GAO has been informing Congress about science and technology trends. You've done reports on long COVID, artificial intelligence. What are some of the trends you'll be following for this year? Well, I think artificial intelligence will continue to be a dominant trend, Amy. There's a lot of attention provided to it in the National Defense Authorization Bill uh, for this year, uh, that making sure that there's competition, um, it, you know, that we can meet uh, the competition that we have from near-peer competitors, China, for, for example. Same thing with quantum computing, hypersonic weapons. But we're also focused on in the medical area, regenerative medicine, for example, uh, in, in that arena. Also in the energy area, we're going to be looking at carbon management, uh, as well as uh, utility scale energy storage areas. And of course, you know, with the advent of electronic vehicles, you know, the use of autonomous vehicles uh, also. And, and so both from an energy standpoint, uh, you know, from batteries and other matters, as well as the use of autonomous vehicles. So our, our work really spans a spectrum of the interest that Congress has and the pervasive impact that science and technology has. And it's almost ubiquitous across the entire federal government's operations. That's why we've tripled the number of people we have in that area over the last couple of years. All right. Well, Gene, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. Always great to be with you, Mimi. Take care and Happy New Year. Japan's defense spending is expected to jump nearly 20% over the next year. Next on Government Matters, we discuss where that money will go. Late last month, Japan's government approved a new defense strategy, which includes historic policy changes and a boost in military spending. Yuki Tatsumi is a senior fellow and director of the Japan program at the Stimson Center. Yuki, welcome to the program. Thanks. So what prompted Japan to review and update its defense strategy? I think the biggest uh, driver of this is a uh, quickly rising threat that uh, Japan feels from China. Um, it already has uh, tripled um, its uh, defense spending compared to what Japan had been spending previously. And they really felt the need to uh, really modernize uh, its defense, uh, defense capability. And that really had uh, prompted to revise the uh, defense strategy as, uh, as the country was uh, actually going through a more thorough revision of its own more broader national security strategy, which was also released together. What specific lessons did Japan take from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Um, so that uh, it could happen, and they, uh, Japan's uh, defense uh, planners are watching uh, Russian tactics uh, very, very carefully, closely, especially the uh, information warfare uh, type of um, emerging technology that it uses, and they basically compare that with uh, what China could do 
and basically in some areas China has a far more advanced capability so that really um, up there a sense of urgency. When you say it could happen, they're not thinking China could invade Japan. No, China, um, that, that, that would not happen. That's not what they're thinking. But there's, there's the uh, little island called uh, Taiwan, which is uh, strategically very, very important for Japan. And uh, if, uh, because of the proximity of uh, Taiwan from a Japanese territory, if China had some aggressive intentions and did try to do anything closer, to what Russia did to Ukraine, um, it quickly uh, spills over to uh, Japan's own territory. And let's not forget, uh, Japan does host a sizable U.S. forces in its own soil. And many of that forces will be deployed to uh, come to a Taiwan's, uh, help Taiwan def defending itself. What are the specific weapons and capabilities that Japan is investing in as part of this new defense strategy? Um, first of all, it is really doubling down on its um, uh, ballistic missile defense uh, capabilities. But then what's new in this, this defense strategy is for the first time in its uh, post-war history, Japan basically declared that it will um, go after to acquire the uh, strike capability. Now, they still are placed in the context of uh, we only use it to defend ourselves and our allies, but it, it, is a, it is a watershed moment for uh, Japanese defense planners. That's what I was going to ask you. Is this solely defensive, or is there a provision for a preemptive strike? There is a case um, that, are um, that are actually uh, acknowledged as the uh, can be the trigger of this uh, capability without solely on a defensive purposes which is more of a broader self-defense purposes. But let's say uh, if they detect either China or North Korea, because North Korea remains to be a Japan's a very urgent threat too, they have uh, actionable intelligence that uh, either of those places are posing to um, launch a missile, and it is very likely to land on Japanese soil, would Japan just do nothing and wait for them to boost and then try to and hope for the best for the missile defense works? So that is the one specific scenario that I could think of, that, that this new, t new, uh, new uh, capability could be used. Will Japan also be enlarging their military personnel forces, or is this just about weapons? Um, it is uh, partly about weapons, but then it is also, also about the uh, modernizing the uh, defense workforce. Uh, Japan, as we all of us, many of us know, is a hyper-aging society. So uh, even though uh, Japan would love to increase its personnel, in terms of the demographics, it's not exactly a feasible option. So how to integrate the uh, new technology so that it didn't have to rely solely on the uh, body counts to put, put it primitively, is, uh, is a very, one of the key elements of the new defense strategy. And I know that the, the U.S. welcomes these changes. Has there been any reaction from China or from North Korea? Um, China, of course, uh, always reacts to whatever Japan tries to do. And uh, North Korea, same way. Um, they're always uh, rhetorically, uh, always uh, try to uh, provoke the uh, memory of uh, Japan way, way back in 1930s. But, um, but I think uh, reaction from Washington really tells that you know, Japan is in a very different place now. China is also known to use economic coercion. How does Japan react to that? How do they defend against something like that? So one of the, uh, one of the key developments that was not exactly reported um, all that much here is that Japan finally uh, turned its focus on what the Biden administration called economic security. And that's all about protecting uh, critical technologies um, and making sure that the, all these, uh, all, all these uh, technologies that 
uh, contribute to economic growth will, will not be used for uh, mal malicious purposes. And uh, that um, wholesale uh, legislation for the first time was enacted in diet, uh, Japanese diet uh, last fall. And that was the uh, precedent. That was like a prelude to this uh, new national security strategy, which uh, dictates the uh, defense strategy. How significant is the boost in Japan's defense spending? And what impact do you think it will have on the security and uh, the deterrence in the Indo-Pacific? I think uh, Japan upping its uh, defense, uh, defense budget. Uh, they say they aim to do this, uh, basically double it over the next five years. Um, have a tremendous impact on it. Uh, first of all, I think it will um, help uh, U.S. Um, U.S. Uh, coming up with the uh, more of a joint integrated allied uh, de deterrence cap uh, defense strategy in the Indo-Pacific region. And Japan can also um, support a United States effort to um, reach out to uh, its uh, regional partners and allies. Um, Australia is the first one that, that comes to my mind. India, Southeast Asia. And even uh, Japan is really now investing its relationship with some of the key NATO allies, like France and Germany, that also does have uh, interest in uh, stability in, the, in, that, in that region. Yuki, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Very nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on the homepage. We'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence 
capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.